Today, believers in Christ around the world celebrate the most momentous, mysterious, and glorious event ever to transpire on planet Earth. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is what I'm speaking about, of course. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. Now, of course, those of the Eastern Orthodox tradition will celebrate his resurrection in a week or so. But the focus will be the same around the world this week. That moment in history when Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power when God raised him from the dead. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who arose. It was not a feminine goddess. It was Jesus Christ, the Lord. That's why I refuse to call this day Easter. Because I do not celebrate of feminine goddess, but a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate Jesus Christ. And so today, I declare to you that Jesus is a living Savior, not a decayed, make-believe goddess. This is his day not hers. Remember that. Now the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so vital to the Christian message that the Apostle Paul actually dedicates an entire chapter of the Word of God in 1 Corinthians to the tell us the significance of this wonderful event we call the resurrection. And it's so sad that so few Christians really revel in this chapter in the book of Corinthians. We spend a lot of time around the gifts, but not on this wonderful chapter that describes to us the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will look at this chapter in some detail because I believe the impact upon our lives is so vital to the Christian experience. So I want you to turn in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would like for you to have your Bibles open and perhaps you'd like to make a note here and there. Now this amazing chapter is a part of a letter sent to a local church that was situated in a Grecian city in which most of its citizens did not believe in the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead, that is. If you recall, when Paul spoke about the resurrection in Athens, many actually mocked him and laughed at him because he was speaking of the resurrection of the dead. You see, the Greeks considered the body to be the prison of the soul, and they actually welcomed death as a release from that imprisonment. They did not believe, generally speaking, in the resurrection of the dead. It seems as though some teachers had come in after Paul had left Corinth 
and we're introducing the false teaching in this local church at Corinth that there was no resurrection of the dead. And Paul realized that because of this erroneous doctrine, the lives of the Corinthian believers were impacted negatively. And so he begins to explain in detail the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to demonstrate the fact that you can only live right if you believe right. If you don't have the proper doctrine, you will not live the kind of life God wants you to live. And so he takes time to explain the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the importance it has upon the way we live. In other words, he knew that the Corinthians were not living right. And he wants to show them that they need to understand doctrine, the teaching of the word of God, if they were to live right. And that's a sad thing that happens today. Many Christians are not concerned about studying doctrine. They do not want to learn the truth. They have Jesus and that's enough. That's a false teaching. You must go to the scriptures to learn about Jesus if you're going to live the way he wants you to. And so Paul sets out in this chapter to answer four questions that if understood correctly would establish the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the most essential doctrine in the Christian's faith. And if applied correctly, it would transform the way believers live, as well as change their attitude toward one another and toward God. And so, the first question he answers is, is the resurrection of the dead a fact? Now please notice the emphasis for me this morning here at this point is the resurrection of the dead. It's not the resurrection from the dead. There's a distinct difference that we'll emphasize later on. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so he wants to answer this question. Is the resurrection of the dead a fact? Or to put it another way, has anyone ever really been raised from the dead? From the state of death? In his answer, he says, yes, someone has been raised. And that person is Jesus Christ. He then gives three reasons for saying that Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead. He says, first of all, that their very salvation depended upon a message that included the resurrection. He's saying if there is no resurrection of the dead, then their salvation is a hoax because the message their salvation depends upon would be a hoax if there's no resurrection. Listen to verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you have taken your stand. Notice now, by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise, you have believed in vain. These are some startling words here. But they simply mean that their salvation was based upon belief in the message that Paul preached to them. 
It's a message that he called the gospel. And you recall in our studies of this earlier, he said that that was the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. The message, the gospel. And he's saying here that this gospel is what they held on to. Now the passage does not mean that they have to hold firmly to the message in order to remain saved. It means that they were in fact saved because they firmly believed the message that they hold on to. The fact that they were standing firm was proof that their faith was genuine and not empty. That it was not useless and without merit. The fact that they were saved demonstrated the validity of the message that Paul preached. This message was real. This message was authentic or else their salvation was not real or authentic. He then goes on to describe the content of the gospel that they believed in order to be saved. And he says that the gospel contains four basic facts that are grounded in the Old Testament. First, Christ died for our sins. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. First importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now notice Paul says, of first important. It means most important of all. The message of the cross is the paramount message of the church. It is a message of substitution. Christ died for the sinner. If you don't preach substitution when you preach the gospel, you are not preaching the gospel. It is not enough to say Christ died. That's history. It has to be Christ died for you. Christ died for me. That's salvation. Thousands of others were crucified on Golgotha's hill. But Jesus Christ was the only one who died for sinners. No one else. And he died not for himself. He died to pay the penalty for those who without God. He knew no sin. No sin was found in him. But he died. He died for you. He died for me. That's the message of Good Friday. The message of the cross. All of the animal sacrifices, and in particular, the blood sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, look forward to the death of Christ on the cross for the sin of mankind. That's why he said he died according to the Scriptures. But then his death is proved by his burial. It says in verse 4, that he was buried. Isaiah spoke of this when he prophesied that the Messiah would be buried with the rich in his death. That was Good Friday. But Sunday's here. And so Paul says he was raised on the third day. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ attested to this himself concerning the prophecy in the experience of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so must the Son of Man be in the grave for three days and three nights. Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all attested to in the Old Testament. The Word of God attested to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he goes on. 
The same way his death was validated by his burial, his resurrection was validated by witnesses who saw him. And each of these has a story in itself that we cannot take time to deal with. But listen how the Holy Spirit describes it. And he appeared to Peter, the one who betrayed him three times. And then to the twelve, his anointed messengers. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. It was not a hallucination of just one and two. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This is a fantastic passage of Scripture. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was attested to, not the event itself, but the fact that they saw the Jesus who was put in the grave. They saw him. He was alive. He was alive. And they attested to that fact. One of the greatest evidence given for the resurrection as a proof of the resurrection the lives of the apostles and those who saw him after his resurrection all of his apostles were martyred in one form or another was it because they saw uh, they had a hallucination was it because they had a dream that they saw Jesus was raised no they saw Jesus Christ and they were willing to die for him as a result Paul then reiterates the point he's making. He said, this is the gospel that saves and preached by the apostle. The message they believe. Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, he's speaking specifically of the apostles, especially Apollos and Cephas, who they're talking about in the book of Corinthians. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. In other words, Paul is trying to emphasize here now, this is an apostolic message. Your salvation is based upon a message that includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the message that the apostles taught. This is the apostolic succession of doctrine. And he says the reason why you believe that you are a believer is because you believe this message, this message that was preached by the apostles. And that message included the resurrection. Now he applies this truth to the present situation because some were questioning the bodily resurrection of the dead. Notice verse 12. But if it is preached, some were actually preaching this in the Corinthians church. See, this is the reason why we have to be careful who preaches to the people of God. This is why we got to be very careful about the kind of information received concerning Jesus Christ. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, you cannot say you believe in the resurrection of Christ and doubt your own resurrection. And in fact, you will have to doubt all the truth that Paul was teaching that there will be a resurrection of the dead if you do not believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Because that's what he's saying. He's saying, now listen, if you say that 
there is no resurrection of the dead, then you cannot believe that Jesus Christ rose either. And if you cannot believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then you are still in your sin. And the message we preach is a hoax. Jesus Christ was a man. Jesus Christ was raised. Paul is saying he is their proof of the fact that human beings do in fact rise from the dead. Now this is an amazing thing here friends. The greatest treatise to be found anywhere in the New Testament concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ is presented not primarily to validate the resurrection of Christ himself but rather to validate the re resurrection of all men. It's an amazing thing here. The resurrection of Christ is sort of a byproduct of this. Paul is trying to demonstrate that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And he's saying the proof of that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Now actually, as far as the believer is concerned, now that Jesus' resurrection has occurred, we really cannot separate our resurrection from his. They are inherently bound together in the overall scheme of God's salvation for man. Friends, this is the glorious fact that is usually not recognized on this glorious day. I'll talk more about this in a moment. But I want you to realize that one of the most significant facts concerning or implications concerning the resurrection of Christ is that your resurrection and my resurrection is bound up in his resurrection. But Paul continues. He presents a kind of a domino effect consequence if one begins with denying that there's no resurrection of the dead. He says in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not being raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is also useless. More than that, it doesn't stop there, in other words. We are then found to be liars about God, false witnesses. Why? For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. In other words, you cannot have one without the other. See, this is the powerful impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 17. And if Christ is not being raised, your faith is futile, useless, vain, void, no good. You're still in your sins. If there's no resurrection. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. All your loved ones who died with faith in Christ, they're gone to hell. If there's no resurrection. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitted more than all men. In other words, Christ's resurrection gives us hope beyond the grave beyond the grave if there's no resurrection then Christ was not raised if he was not raised there's no gospel to preach if there's no gospel then you're believed in vain and you are still in your sins if there's no resurrection then believers who have died have no hope 
we shall never see them again. That's Paul's argument. The conclusion is obvious. Why be a Christian? If we have only suffering in this life and no future glory to anticipate. The resurrection then is not just important. Paul says it is of first importance because it impacts your entire destiny. It impacts how you live as a believer. Some people like to have the idea that says, you know, there's no hell. And we accept Christ as our Savior. We live a good life. We haven't lost anything. Because we lived a good life and we went, that's it. Paul doesn't argue that way. He said in a moment, Paul says, that's not true. If there's no hell, you should live like you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's Paul's argument. If there is no hell, why be good? We're going to see that. Paul is going to say, it's the resurrection that makes the difference. And here's the point. The way you live as a believer, or even as an unbeliever, shows how much you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just say you believe it in your head, but if you really believe it. If you really believe it, your life will be different than if you don't. That's why this message of the resurrection of Christ is of first importance. Now notice how he concludes in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Jesus did die. Jesus was raised. Paul is saying that's an established fact. Jesus' resurrection proves that there is and will be a resurrection of the dead. My friends, it's Sunday. Jesus has arisen. Paul answers the second question now after he's finished with whether or not anyone has been raised from the dead. He goes on to answer a second question. And that question is, when are or will the dead be raised? He uses three metaphors or illustrations to answer this important question. When will or are the dead raised? First he says, Christ is the first fruit or the forerunner of all who will be raised. He says, and he states this fact, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We can paraphrase it this way. Jesus is the first to be raised of all believers who will be raised. Dr. Risby, he describes this section like this, and I quote him now. As the Lamb of God, Jesus died on Passover. As the sheaf of first fruits, he arose from the dead three days later on the first day of the week. When the priest waved the sheaf of the first fruits before the Lord, it was a sign that the entire harvest belonged to him. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was God's assurance to us that we shall also be raised one day as part of the future harvest. End of quote. Future harvest. That's you and that's me. If you are a believer in Christ. Now the term first fruits here. Of course were not the harvest itself. Yet 
they were more than a simple pledge or promise of the harvest. They were the actual beginnings of the harvest. And this is the point I really want you to get today. In other words, the act of reaping, the harvest, started when Jesus was raised from the dead. So with us. Jesus' resurrection is not an isolated event that gives us warm feelings or confidence and hope of a future, future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the end time resurrection itself. In other words, the end time is here. It is not future especially with the resurrection. It's here. It began when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The end time as far as resurrection is concerned has already started. It has been implanted in time and history in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not merely an event in past history. It's a part of ongoing history and we are a part of it. Do you get that? You see, as though there's a line, a line of people who will be resurrected. And we are waiting for the door to open. What Paul is telling us, the door has already been opened and the first person has gone through. The next in line is you and me. Did you get that? It started. It's not a future event. It's in process. It's happening. We are now living in the resurrection. Do you understand that? It's the actual appearance upon the scene of history of something that belongs to the eternal order. In other words, the eternal has been brought into time. Put another way. Time has been projected into eternity. Are you getting this? See, this is the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the impact it should have upon our lives. We are a part of the resurrection now. He substantiates this in verse 21. For since death came through a man... That's Adam. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. That's Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now in context we know this is all believers. Because not all resurrections is unto life. We'll talk about that in a moment. In other words, Paul saw in Adam a type of Jesus Christ by way of contrast. He does the same thing in Romans 5. He says the first Adam was made from the earth. Adam represented a lost humanity. But the last Adam, Christ, came from heaven. The first Adam disobeyed God and brought sin and death into the world. But the last Adam obeyed the Father and brought righteousness and life into the world. 
And he says, because of this fact, because of this truth, whatever happens to Jesus Christ happens to the believer in Christ. Do you understand that? He's talking about the resurrection. What happened to Christ? He was raised. What will happen to you? You will be raised. Why? Because he was raised. Because he represents you. Do you get that? This is a fantastic truth. But now he goes on to explain the order of the resurrection. I want you to see how important this doctrine is to the Apostle Paul. He's explaining this thing in detail. He talks about the order. Verse 23. But each in his own turn. This word here in turn or order comes from the army. It has to do with a regimental process. One after the other in order. But each in his own turn. Christ. The first fruits. That's what we celebrate today. Christ as the first fruit of the resurrection to life. Then. When he comes back, those who belong to him, when he comes back, those who belong to him. See, this gives us an idea that he himself is going to be a part of our resurrection as well. He is going to play an essential part. But he's saying here, God has an order, a sequence in the resurrection. And that sequence has already started. And once it started, nothing in heaven or hell can ever stop it. Nothing. Now when you read passages like John 5 and Revelation 20, which indicate that there's no such thing as a general resurrection. Nowhere in scripture they have the idea that everybody is going to die and then when everybody has died, there's going to be this general resurrection and you are going to be judged according to your works and so on. Nowhere in the scripture can we find that teaching. There's an order. There's a sequence to the events. There are at least four major resurrections in scripture. And it begins with Jesus Christ. The next in line are the believers. It's an order. It's a sequence. When Jesus Christ returns in the air, he will take his church to heaven. And at that time, raised from the dead, all who have trusted him and have died in faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus calls this the resurrection of life in John 5, 29. When Jesus returns to earth in judgment, then the lost will be raised in the resurrection of damnation at least a thousand years later. Listen carefully. Nobody in the first resurrection will be lost. But nobody in the second resurrection will be saved. You get that? No one in the first resurrection will be lost. And no one in the second uh, resurrection, or what we call resurrection unto damnation, will be saved. So the big question to you is, on this resurrection day, which resurrection... Will you appear at? Are you a part of the first or the second? The end time I want to emphasize has begun. Christ will soon return to end it in judgment. 
But before he does, he wants to harvest more resurrection fruit that will be just like him in terms of a transformed, glorified body right now. In other words, he's waiting, perhaps for you, to become a part of his harvest. Because he wants to harvest fruit just like himself. He's looking forward to a day when all those who trust him will be transformed into a body just like his own. The same way he was raised and was given a new body, all those who place faith in him will be raised and given a new body. He's waiting, perhaps for you. My friends, some marvelous truths are revealed here. Including one I say that we really don't realize or take into account as we should. Consider for a moment. Exactly what is the nature, the meaning and essence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just think about it, please. This just isn't some cold doctrine. This is divine truth. That is designed by God to transform our lives. What is the nature, the meaning and essence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Was his resurrection simply a resuscitation of a corpse? Does the body resurrection of Christ simply mean that he came back to life again just as he was before he died? The restoration of physical life of a dead body? Of course not. Because if this was so, then he was not the first person to be truly resurrected. Maybe resuscitated, but not resurrected in the true biblical sense of the term. In other words, if resurrection or restoration to physical life was all that resurrection meant, the disciples preaching about resurrection would not have impacted the Jews the way it did. Why? Because some of the Jews already believed in resurrection. But not in the way it was preached by the apostles. They believed in a different kind of resurrection. For instance, Acts chapter 4. This is what the scripture says, verse 1. The priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Now I want you to understand what is happening here. The Jews were upset because the disciples were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now this is an extremely significant statement. What made the apostles' teaching of the resurrection different from the teaching of the Pharisees who also believed and taught the resurrection from the dead? What made the difference was that they were preaching a theory. They were preaching a philosophy. They were preaching a doctrine. And listen, they were not persecuted for preaching that. They preached a resurrection, but they weren't persecuted. 
It is clear that the apostles' teaching gave the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead a new significance. But what was it? Well, for one thing, the Pharisees taught the resurrection as theological theory only. And they had much debate about the time and the subject of the resurrection. They did a lot of discussions. But now when the apostles came along with the Christian message of resurrection, a whole different concept was presented. Listen carefully now. Because this is the impact of the resurrection day that we celebrate today. The apostles' teaching of the doctrine was no abstract theory or cold theological truth without personal impact. What they proclaimed, now listen carefully, what they proclaimed was a contemporary historical fact. They were proclaiming something that had just happened. They were not proclaiming something that will happen or might happen or could happen. They were proclaiming something that did happen. Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. That made the difference. Now you see, why this frightened the Jews so much is that it would challenge the very heart and validity of Judaism because they would then have to admit that God performed a new redemptive act without them knowing anything about it. They couldn't accept that doctrine. In other words, listen carefully. The persecution, the opposition of the Jewish people against the preaching of Jesus being raised from the dead was the proof of his validity. They knew it was true, but they couldn't admit it. Otherwise, it would tear their entire religion down. Not only that, the disciples were not simply proclaiming the resurrection of a crucified teacher. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now notice, not the resurrection of the dead. They were proclaiming Jesus as the resurrection from the dead. Only Jesus was raised. And he was raised from among the dead. He left all of them there. He was the first fruit. He was raised from the dead. But more importantly, he was raised out of the dead. In other words, the Jewish people realized that if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then it was true that he was the Son of God. This is a powerful message. Jesus' resurrection was the forerunner of the resurrection of all believers. Resurrection was now taken out of the realm of a theological debated hope for the future. It was now a fact and reality of the present. Jesus' resurrection actually brought into the present time, the end time. Did you get that? Jesus' resurrection actually brought into the present time, the end time. 
as someone has said, and I quote, it was the emergence within time of a new order of life. We talk about a new world order. Jesus brought it in when he was raised from the dead. And everyone who places faith in him becomes a part of that new world order. What is that new world? It's a new world of resurrection power. Jesus was raised and now he is free from the power of sin upon him. No more death. Jesus was raised to a newness of life. And everybody who places faith in him is raised into that same new world. If you are a believer, you and I should be living the way Jesus Christ lives after he was raised, not just before. He was raised in newness of life unto God alone. Look at your life. If you profess to be a believer, has it really been transformed? Or do you lie and steal and are a hypocrite just like you always were? No, 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 no. That's not the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It changes. It transforms. It puts us into a new realm. The realm of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful message. This is the truth, my friends. The amazing truth that we do not take into consideration as we should. Listen now, listen. One day... We shall behold him as he is. We shall see him. Not as he was before he went into that tomb. But in a new and a wonderful transformed body. But you know something? We're going to see him in a new transformed body also. We're going to have a body just like he is. To see him in the body that he has right now. And he was raised from the dead. That's the hope we have. Friends, listen. If it's anything that this day should do for us, it is first of all to cause us to ask ourselves, are we living in the power of the resurrected life? Or are we always excusing our sin by saying we're only human? In the power of the resurrected Christ, my friends, we have power over sin. But not only that... He gives us hope beyond the grave. One day, we're going to be changed. We're going to be transformed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This body, your body if you believe her, will be transformed. And you know the first person you're going to see is Jesus Christ. We shall behold him. Good Friday focuses on the death of Christ and it exhorts us to own Jesus Christ as our Savior. The resurrection of Christ focuses on Christ as our Lord and exhorts us to let him rule in our lives. He's my Lord. Is he yours?